As we begin, I just want to start with a question. Uh, the question is, what can you count on? Who can you trust? Is anything in life a sure bet? Is anything a certainty? And certainly if I had stock information for you, that would make this morning a very valuable Sunday, but I don't. Um, one of the things that we've seen uh, in our lives is that there is no such thing as a, a sure bet, is that people do prove uh, unworthy of our trust. Uh, for example, um, Americans lost somewhere between 14 and 16 billion dollars, that might even be a T, trillion dollars of wealth in the uh, stock market and housing downturn from 2007 to 2009. And so many who assumed that something was a good investment, many who believed that nothing bad could happen to them discovered that something bad can happen to us and even housing is not a sure bet. Some of you remember Bernie Madoff, who was arrested about the same time. Uh, He was arrested for a $65 billion Ponzi scheme. There's over 16,000 claims against him by families who he betrayed. They trusted him with their resources. They trusted him to put together a secure retirement for them, and he proved unworthy of their trust. Even recently, uh, our youth discovered that institutions that are supposed to be all about uh, the well-being of our kids and higher education and preparing them for careers, uh, we discovered that some of those institutions really don't have all of our kids' best interests in mind because many of those institutions were essentially selling enrollment places uh, to the highest bidder. And so just everywhere around us as we look, we we see trust crumbling. We see things that um, seemed to be certain become very uncertain. And so it begs the question, who can we trust? What can we trust? And as we walk through the Old Testament together, it is my hope that we will see this thread from beginning to end of God proving credible, his words proving trustworthy, his character proving something we can count on. And so as we enter First and Second Samuel, we're about a thousand years before the birth of Christ, and we see that God's people are intact. And so just by the, by the fact that they're intact, we realize that the Lord has been faithful to a promise he made to Noah that he would never again destroy his people through a flood. They're still intact. We see that God has been faithful. His word has come true. Not only are they still intact, but they have become a great nation. And in Genesis 12, God promised to Abraham to make his descendants a great nation. So we see in the mere fact that his people are intact and have in fact become a great nation, that God has been faithful and his word has proven true and his character can be relied upon. Not just those two, but they're also occupying a place called the promised land, something promised by God to Moses in the wilderness that if God's people followed his law, he would give them the promised land. And so we see by their location, God's words have been true. God's character can be counted on. What he has said has been reliable. What he has done has been certain. And so a couple observations about God's people at this point. Uh, that I think are useful for our lives. One, God's people through this period of history, uh, their kings, their leaders, uh, the people as a whole, have either been obstacles to God's work or they have been tools or assets for God's work. Obstacles or tools. 
and most often we see that they have been obstacles. And then the flip side of that coin is that despite the fact that they have repeatedly turned their backs on him, he has not turned his back on them. And so we see that God's work has continued to go forward in and through flawed and foolish people, such that he has been proven faithful, his words proven true in spite of their unfaithfulness. Uh, God's people, despite these profound moments of faith, uh, continue to mimic culture rather than obey the Lord. They continue to mimic culture rather than obey the Lord. It comes to a head in 1 Samuel chapter 8 when the people want to be like the nations around them. They have enemies that are growing in strength, growing in might. They're scared and they want a king. They don't want God as their king. They want a king that they can see. They want a king that looks strong, that they can take courage from, that they can put their trust in. And so they come to Samuel, God's judge, and they say, give us a king. And in this great act of betrayal, Samuel is crushed. And God says to Samuel, Samuel, make it so. This is First Samuel 8, 7 and 8. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them according to all the deeds that they have done. And from the day that I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Lord says there's a pattern here. Despite glimmers of faith, despite some high points in this journey, God's people perpetually become the damsel in distress, and he becomes their rescuer, and he continues to be their rescuer. And God says, Samuel, give them what they want. It's not good for them, but give them what they want. And so there's this reality that we see often in Scripture and even in our own lives where God allows things that we've asked for. God allows us to get things we want. God allows things to happen that we're pursuing, even though at times they're not good for us. And we see that God is willing at times to do things and allow things that will even be hurtful to us temporarily for the purpose of not eternally harming us. So it is a big deal for God's people to turn their back on him, and he's going to let them go their own way for a time so that he can reel them back in and say, do you see the futility of where you're heading and welcome them back into his presence? And so the first point today is simply that um, we can trust God for his provisions. We can trust God for what we need. We can trust God to give us what we need in spite of the things we ask for, in spite of the things that we want, that we think will make us happy. I've mentioned it before, but virtually every quality of my wife that I love, I didn't even know about until long after we were married. So it has gotten better with time. There are more aspects of her personality, more aspects of her character, more aspects of the way that she's wired that I appreciate now. And they're all things that I wasn't even looking for initially. And so in that, I have seen God has given me what I wanted. God has given me what I needed, even though I had no clue what I was looking for. God allows them to have a king. Some of you know his name, King Saul. Again, we're about a thousand years before the birth of Christ. Uh, King Saul is a strong, good-looking, tall, kingly 
figure. In other words, he meets the people's job description, but he does not meet God's job description, right? He lacks wisdom. He lacks spiritual discernment. He often does what makes sense to him rather than following the clear instruction from the Lord. And so you know that he fails. You know that things fall apart under his lack of leadership, lack of discernment, lack of wisdom, lack of spiritual wisdom. And God removes him, is going to remove him. And in Acts 13, God calls a man named David. I want you just to hear what is said of David in Acts 13, 21 and 22. It says, Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. Amazing that the Lord was patient with the people for 40 years under King Saul. Verse 22, And when he had removed him, Saul, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do my will. God calls David a man after his own heart, who will do his will. And so we could spend a lot of time trying to talk about what exactly does it mean to be a man after God's own heart, a person after God's own heart, and do his will. I think the story of David and Goliath captures some of that heart well. Uh, Some of you are familiar with that story. David's older brothers are at war. David comes to visit them to provide bread and food and resources and he happens to be there when the philistines are across the valley and the philistines champion a giant of the man gets up and essentially mocks the israelites army and says who out there will fight me if none of you will fight me uh, we're going to destroy you all and he defies god david says "Uh, what's this Now, now David's a runt, right? David's probably 12, 13, 14. David is a young man. He's a small man. He was left to raise the animals. He was not counted worthy to be even a part of the army, a part of the battle. David says, what's this? I'll fight him. David goes in to the king, Saul. And you remember what he says to King Saul? He says, God has taken care of me when animals attacked my flocks, and God gave me victory over them. God was with me before, and God will continue to be with me. And then he says, besides that, anybody could go up against this giant. Why? Because God fights our battles. Anyone could go up against the giant because God fights our battles. David wasn't just an expert with the slingshot, and so he was well uh, situated to be just the perfect strategic counter to Saul's size and strength. Anyone could go up against him because God fights our battles. And so we see just a glimpse of this heart of David where David cares more about God's name than his own. He doesn't fight Goliath for fame or for fortune or for recognition or for position. He gets all those, but that's neither here nor there. David is appalled that this man would be allowed to defy the name of God. We see that David cares more about God's name than his own. We see that David is a man of action. He doesn't just talk about God. He talks to God. He doesn't just talk about what God wants. He does what God wants. When everyone steps back, David steps forward, not because he's most qualified, not because he possesses some superpower. David trusts God. God has been faithful in the past. David believes God will be faithful in the future. We see that David knows he doesn't fight his own battles. 
what would it look like, pause for a minute, what would it look like in your life to know in your heart, in a deep place, that God fights your battles? Maybe there's relationships right now you're meddling with. You're trying to make everyone happy. You're trying to make everyone's life just right around you. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's a sibling. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's an aunt. Maybe it's an uncle. Maybe it's a coworker, and you're running ragged trying to fix everything for everybody. What would it look like if you truly believed in your heart that God fought your battles? Many of us have uh, incredible health things going on right now. Uh, Many of us have some very strained relationships, things that create tremendous weight, uh, tremendous anxiety. What would it look like if we believed with all of our heart that the Lord fought our battle and we didn't have to preoccupy every second of our mental, emotional, spiritual, and mind space trying to solve problems because we were able to wait on the Lord. We were able to rest in his power. We were able to trust that he had a plan in place even if we can't, even if we couldn't see what it is. We see that David understands that God fights his battles and it's going to be one of the things that will make him a great king. Trust that God fights his battles. Uh, so the first point is trust God for his provisions. Second, second one this morning is to trust God for his work. David has now been king for some time, and 2 Samuel 7 is really just the high point of these two books uh, that originally were one. Um, and so God's going to come to David, and, and David has this idea of this great thing he will do for God. And God, almost like this fatherly moment, is going to pat David on the head and say, that's cute. Um, let me tell you what I'm going to do. God's going to say, let me tell you what I've got planned. Uh, and David is going to discover that God's plans far exceed what he could ever imagine and that God himself will bring them to be. It's not contingent upon David becoming the greatest warrior, the wisest king, uh, the most courageous leader. Uh, so we're going to pick up in Second Samuel uh, chapter 8, sorry, chapter 7. We'll read the first three verses together. This is what David wants to do, right? David wants to do something great for God. Then God's going to respond, and then David is going to go, oh my gosh. 2 Samuel 7, 1 through 3. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan and the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Nathan is his uh, prophet. Nathan is an advisor. Nathan is someone he turns to for wise counsel. David says, I have this really cool place to live. The Ark of the Covenant, where God's presence dwells, lives in a tent. That doesn't seem right. Nathan says, do what is in your heart. Uh, So at face value, last week, Gideon took credit for everything good that was happened, and it ruined his life. David is now king. Things are going well, and David says, I know who brought this about. I know who was the provider of this. I know who made this happen. I want to recognize God and help our people to recognize God too. Uh, We see that at at face value, and certainly there's some spiritual discernment there. Uh, But underneath the surface, we see that David is trusting God to do his work, and one of the ways that we trust God to, to do his work is by obeying what he has already said. And so if you were to flip backwards to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 12, uh, you would read God's instruction for when peace 
came and that instruction for when peace was given to them by the Lord that they were to stop and to worship. Let me, let me read Deuteronomy 12, 10 and 11. It says this, But when you go over the Jordan, that's into the promised land, and you live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, you're not earning it, you didn't take it, you didn't conquer it, the Lord your God is giving it to you to inherit. And when he gives you rest from all your enemies so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose, to make his name dwell there. There you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices and your tithes and the contribution that you present and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. God says, when you get into the land which I'm going to give you, before I give it to you, when you get there, don't forget this, I will show you a choice, a place, and set up there and worship me with the best that you have. And so we see that David is now enjoying the peace of God. It says so in the first three verses there of Second Samuel 7. And he's following through what God has previously told him to do before he continues forward. And so I think there's a, there's a thing there. There's something there for us to hang on to, especially those of us who are looking to the future and saying, God, what do you want next? God, where do you want me to go? God, what big step do you have for me? And to be mindful of the fact that Often, God has some very small steps of obedience, things that he's already communicated to us that he's waiting for us to do before he continues to move us forward. And, and so David uh, obeys what God has said as part of trusting God for God's work in his life. Um, uh, let's continue through uh, chapter 7, uh, verses 4 through 7. The Lord comes to Nathan and gives Nathan a response for David, who wants to build this, this great house, this great temple for the Lord. Second Samuel 7, 4 through 7. But the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. He said, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling in all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel. Did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? God says, I, I don't need a house. I've never needed a house. I, I've been just fine uh, leading you, directing you, defeating your enemies, going before you. And so we see it's not about a place. It's about a it's about a person, and David wants to build a place, and God reminds him that it's not about a place. It's about a person, even though this place is part of David's obedience to the Lord, a, a place that is going to become very significant. And so God pauses him in the midst of these aspirations that he has and says, don't forget, it's not about a place, it's about a person. And God says, keep in mind, I didn't ask for this, and I don't need this. In other words, I don't need you, David, to continue to do and advance my work in your midst. I don't need your obedience for my work to go forward. And, and so sometimes this thing happens in our hearts where we will take a step of obedience and then think God owes us. We will respond how we maybe think from Scripture we should, uh, maybe even in some sort of sacrificial way. And then immediately we have this posture before the Lord is, all right, God, take care of everything. I just did my part. Now let's... let's, let's uh, pay up let's settle up uh, and so we see that god says you, you don't put me in your debt 
You don't build something for me and then get to tell me how to rule or tell me how to govern or tell me how to be God. Um, In fact, he's not even going to allow David to build the house. Uh, He reminds David it's not about a place, uh, it's about a person. And, And so we see that part of trusting God to do his work is not putting boundaries around him of what he can do or how he should act or govern uh, in our lives or in the lives of others around us, holding very loosely um, to our expectations, trusting him to be God and trusting uh, that he will do uh, what he sees fit, and that will be right. As we get into verses 8 and 9 there in chapter 7, um, there's a, these are kind of my favorite moments in the Bible where, where God looks at David and says, Don't you remember who you are, right? If you know who you are, you know who I am. He does that with David in, in verses 8 and 9. He says, David, remember where you came from. Remember you, you were out with the smelly sheep. You remember that? Like they kept headbutting you. They kept running away. You had to chase them. Uh, and God says, I saw you when no one saw you. I came to you when no one was out there with you. And I have set you as king over my people. And, and so a key nuance there is, David did not usurp the crown from Saul. David did not see Saul acting wickedly and take the crown. The crown that David has is not something that he pursued, that he chased, that he wanted for himself. It was something that God gave him. And so we need to see David as God's choice for this role, not someone who was worthy on his own and therefore God elevated him. He is God's choice, successes and failures in all. If you're here this morning and you're someone who kind of feels like God got a deal when you signed up. None of you feel that way because you're laughing or, or you're elbowing someone. We see that with David that his successes are not his successes. The fact that he rose to be king is not something that was by his uh, assertiveness. He he wasn't first up in the morning, 3.30 every morning, working harder than everyone else. His successes were not his successes. His position was not his position. The story of 1 and 2 Samuel is not David. The story of 1 and 2 Samuel is God. And so as we look at our lives and maybe there's things that we take credit for, maybe there's things that we're proud of, maybe there's a position in life we've gotten to that, that we think is pretty impressive. I would want us to see uh, that, that what we have, that our position, that our families, those aren't our successes. It's about God. And we see that because David is going to humble himself. He's not going to become puffed up Uh, at the end of this chapter and and so when we recognize where god has brought us from and what he's brought us to it doesn't cause us to stick our chests out it doesn't cause us to want recognition it doesn't cause us to need to be patted on the back it causes us to marvel at god and so as david moves forward as god is preparing david to deliver this extraordinary promise here in in chapter seven god says don't forget david where i found you where you were and, and so there's kind of a flip side to that, too, because many of us think that where we came from dictates what God can do with us. The f- our family of origin. Some of you have 
have had really horrific upbringing, really stories that, that, that you've shared and stories that you have never shared even to date that you endured as a very young child. And, and we're just reminded that it doesn't matter where we came from and it doesn't matter that the circumstances that we've lived through don't dictate or limit what God can do in and through our lives. All right, 9 through 16. This is probably the highlight of First uh, and Second Samuel and probably five books in either direction. Second uh, Samuel 7, 9 through 16. David has said, God, I want to do this for you. God says, that's cute, son. Uh, let me tell you what I'm going to do and sit down. This is the Lord. And I have been with you wherever you went. I have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you, and here it starts, I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. Verse 11, from the time that I appointed judges over my people, Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies, moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. That's going to be Solomon. Verse 13, he shall build a house for my name. Solomon's going to do that. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, when he commits sin, I will discipline him with the rod of men. In other words, I'm not going to let him just go off the deep end. I'm not going to let him keep squandering this position away. I'm not going to let him ruin this great thing that I've provided. I will discipline him with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so at this point, David's just like, I just wanted to build you a house. (laughs) I, I, I mean, he's got to be overwhelmed as God says, David, I am choosing you. I am divinely putting my hand upon you to establish a lineage of your descendants to rule, to provide protection for my people, to ensure prosperity for my people, and to ensure that my presence never departs from my people. I am choosing you, David, and this isn't just going to be for your son or your son's son. This is going to be an eternal promise, an eternal covenant. It is going to exist forever and so we understand from scripture that the idea that it exists forever uh, leads us to jesus and in matthew and in luke jesus is described as coming from the house of jesse um, or from the house of david and that the lineage that we read about in matthew connects the birth of jesus uh, and jesus father joseph all the way back to david such that God's fulfillment of this covenant is partially seen in David and his descendants, more fully seen in Jesus when he comes, and ultimately completed and perfectly fulfilled when Jesus comes again a second time. So they saw aspects of this fulfillment in their lifetime. We see more of its fulfillment in our lifetime, but we still live in the in-between 
where the promises have not fully come to fruition, and they won't until Jesus returns a second time. And so there's going to be a straining in our life. We're constantly going to be at war because these things have not fully come to fruition yet. Here's just a couple uh, interesting things, I think, about David and Jesus and parallels between them that add to the really uh, explicit detail in Scripture that David prepares us for Jesus, that David and the kingly line prepares us or teaches us about Jesus, the king of kings. Just a couple of interesting similarities, and there's dozens, but here's nine. David and Jesus both come from humble origins uh, and families with very humble occupations, right? Uh, uh, David is a shepherd. Jesus comes from a carpenter's family in a town that is entirely insignificant. And I would try to compare that to a town around here, but I would offend somebody. So just a town that is entirely insignificant. Fill in the blanks as you'd like. Second, David and Jesus both wielded considerable influence before they ever ruled. And so we see David as a commander of armies. We see David with great military victories. We see David uh, in the house of King Saul, and and God's hand is upon him long before he ever becomes king. Uh, Jesus has incredible influence on earth prior to returning to be with the Father and to rule and to reign forever, both have considerable influence before they ever rule. Uh, Number three, David and Jesus both unified God's people. David unified them through peace, through military power and peace. Jesus brings Jews and Gentiles together. Jesus uh, brings all who have things about them that are not like, that are not likely to come together. Jesus becomes the common bond uh, that is greater than any disunity we might have. Uh, David was anointed by Samuel. The same word anointed is used of Jesus. Uh, Number five, David mourns his betrayer. Do you remember when Saul dies on the battlefield and David mourns for his loss, even though Saul has tried to kill him repeatedly? You remember maybe Jesus in the garden weeping, praying over Jerusalem, praying for them, uh, the city that would put him to death. They don't know what they're doing. Both David and Jesus pray for their betrayers. Uh, number six, uh, even, av- even after both begin to reign, a period of time exists before their reign is fully consummated, so to speak. David gets the crown, but it takes six or seven years before he's able to unite all of the tribes of Israel under his leadership. Uh, so there's a, a time between him becoming king and it fully being realized. Jesus is ruling and reigning with the Lord right now in heaven, but it will be more fully realized when he returns again. Uh, Seven, David made the presence of God central in Jerusalem. He did that by bringing the ark to Jerusalem and preparing for the temple to be built, which his son Solomon would eventually uh, build. And, And you might ask, well, where was the ark during this period of time? During the period of Judges, we're kind of not really sure where the ark is. It's, it's kind of floating around. Uh, eventually, it gets taken by the Philistines. They put it in a house for one of their gods, and they wake up the next morning, and the statues for their gods have crumbled or are falling over on the ark. So they're scared of this thing, so they just send it back into Israel, uh, kind of like unmanned, and 
a, a farmer or a county person uh, sort of takes it in and it lives out there on the margins, on the fringes of society. David brings it into Jerusalem. David makes the presence of God central to worship and to his people. Jesus brings the presence of God and, and makes the presence of God personal in each of our hearts when we follow him. Through David, God's people have rest from their enemies. Jesus made it possible for us to enter God's rest. Number nine, David helps establish a national kingdom. Jesus establishes a spiritual kingdom. As you uh, read stories about David uh, on your own and and devotions and and things like that, uh, and these kings, uh, we want to understand David and the subsequent kings to be God's chosen viceroys. They rule with the power that he has given them to rule for the purpose of helping the people understand who he is and preparing them for his future work. And, and so uh, the final point this morning is we can trust God for his provisions, his work, and we can trust him for the future that we can't see because all of this is going to happen in the future. All of this is going to be beyond David's lifetime Uh, The best parts are going to be thousands of years later. And so David is going to have to trust that God is going to bring about the things that he said he would, even though he's not going to get to see uh, all of it. If you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation uh, 20. David's family is divinely chosen to provide protection for God's people. They're going to do that. Prosperity for God's people. Uh, If you know the story of Solomon, you know that people come from all over the world. Dignitaries, kings, queens come from all over the world to give Solomon gifts, to marvel at God's presence in him as seen through his wisdom and his discernment. Enormous prosperity and ultimately, most importantly, to ensure that God's presence never departs from his people. Those are the three prongs of this uh, Davidic covenant, this promise between God and David and his descendants. Three aspects of what David and his family are chosen to do that foreshadow what Jesus will do. And so, again, we live in this in-between where we have aspects of that protection, we have aspects of that prosperity, and aspects of that presence. We have the presence of God in us, in a special way that did not exist during David's time where we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit when we follow the Lord. The kind of protection we have, we know that that Jesus has conquered death, has paid the price that our sins require. So in that way, we are protected from ourselves. We are protected from the judgment that we deserve. Uh, And as regards to prosperity, we see just an, an enormous spiritual prosperity that Jesus initiates and leads us into those who follow him. Um, But many of us feel a strain because we know that the world is still very insecure, unpredictable, and we're scared at times. Gabe and Kim are heading to Indonesia. We have a team going to Alaska. Indonesia sounds a little bit more scary than Alaska. Um, There's still some very warranted 
fears, about new, uh, about cultures, about travel, about all sorts of things. Uh, and so we, we do feel this tension with regards to our security, this tension with regards to our prosperity. Most of us feel we were meant for a little bit more than what we have. Most of us want a little bit more than what we have. If you went to any of the graffiti events, you likely are guilty of coveting. It's partly why my family doesn't go to any of those events. I, w- I want everything that I see, a couple of each in different colors, um, But we do feel attention with what we believe we were made for and what we see happening around us. Um, We pursue the presence of God in all sorts of um, uh, inferior ways. And we won't fully know the presence of God as he intended until Jesus returns and comes again. Um, Revelation 20 records the protection that is final that is fulfilled, that is complete when Jesus returns and defeats Satan. Uh, Revelation 20.10, And the devil who had deceived them, deceived the whole world, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever. The protection that is made available for God's people is final is complete is eternal forever but it is not fully realized yet bumping over revelation 21 verses 21 through 25 we see a little bit of the prosperity and god's presence verse 21 of chapter 21 and describing the new jerusalem our home with the lord says and the 12 gates big wall lots of gates Twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. Often when you see descriptions of heaven, descriptions of the New Jerusalem, it's going to be described in things that would generally be considered prosperous conditions. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the lamb and the city has no need of a sun or a moon to shine on it for the glory of god gives its light and its and lamb is the lamb by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there why aren't the gates shut there's no one that we're afraid gets in there's no reason to lock your door at night the presence of god will light the city uh, and so we see that the spirit of god came upon david in first samuel when david was anointed jesus makes the spirit of god accessible to all of us one day in heaven the presence of god will light our world so uh, what does this mean as we as we ask this question this morning of can we trust in anything? Can we trust in, in anyone? And, and even as I say that, maybe for some of you, all, all you can think about is the people that have let you down, the leaders that you trusted, the friends, the family members that have broken promises to you, that have betrayed you, that have said and done things that you would never do to anyone, but they've done them to you, unwarranted in, in your uh, mindset. And so uh, as we consider what it means that God is reliable, a couple things that come to mind. Um, one, we don't have to exhaustively strain to protect ourselves. We don't have to spend every waking 
minute trying to figure out how to keep harm at a distance, pain and difficulty and suffering out of our lives, out of our kids' lives, out of our friends' lives. We don't have to fix everything. We have a God who fights our battles. And so that obsessive straining, that anxiety that we feel, trying to make smooth paths for ourselves and for those uh, that we love, if, if we trust ultimately that we will not have that perfect sense of protection in this life because God's plan is still incomplete. It hasn't been fulfilled yet. Uh, it helps us to release those things to the Lord and manage our expectations uh, that what we want will be what we have, but it's not today. We can stop striving after our own versions of prosperity one of the lines that I like, I think C.S. Lewis says that if you find in yourself the desire uh, that the world cannot fulfill, the most probable explanation is that you were not meant for this world or you were meant for another world. And, and so we see in our hearts a constant striving for more. No matter what we have, we want more. If you go over to the graffiti show and I like the Corvettes, if you see an old, convet, uh, old Corvette, that's really nice, but there's probably an older one that's a little bit more valuable next to it. And there's probably an older one next to that that's more original and more valuable and has lower miles and a better paint job next to that. There's always something more. There's always something better. And and, and so as we strive for whatever better is in our lives and our definitions, uh, we find that that we we can stop striving and we can enter the Lord's rest. Because how many of you know that striving is an enormous burden to carry. Striving is an exhausting burden to carry. It's not a race we can win. It's not a race we can finish. Uh, and so as we trust that the Lord is completing his work, that he has promised it, he is doing it, and he will complete it, it allows us to let go of that responsibility, that mantle, that weight that we have to protect ourselves and everyone in our life and make their lives and our lives perfect according to whatever our definition of prosperity is. Um, And then last, it means we can begin to start to find our sense of satisfaction, our sense of value, our sense of purpose, uh, of meaning, of fulfillment in our relationship with Jesus, in what he says about us, not what we believe about ourselves or what others say about us. And so, one of the ways we see this play out is that for many of us, uh, work uh, or family or some sort of accomplishment or perfection of a craft or a trade is what we look to to be validated. For many of us, it's our families. It's the success of our kids or uh, a spouse, a husband or a wife, the families that we come to and, and everything looking just right. And if everything looks just right and maybe even is close to what we want, uh, we feel good about who we are, what we've accomplished. And, and so we, we get to stop that never-ending striving and enter the Lord's rest as we discover that what we most need is found in Him, that the protection, the prosperity, the presence of God that we chase in different forms uh, is ultimately only available in Jesus Christ, and it's free don't have to pay for it.
don't have to work for 15 years in an apprenticeship and then maybe have a chance. Uh, it's free. What does Jesus say? Come, follow me. What happened at VBS this week, on many occasions, children check boxes saying, I want to follow Jesus. And our teachers got to have really cool interactions with our kids, explaining to them what it means to follow Jesus. And our kids, some of them now have stories that they're going to tell their kids, and they're going to talk about Vacation Bible School in 2019, and they're, they're going to remember their teacher's name. They're going to remember what they did as a spiritually significant moment where their lives changed forever, where they began a path, a journey uh, with Jesus. If you're here today and you've never begun that journey with Jesus, uh, would you come forward when the worship team is up here leading us in a final song? We're going to have prayer teams on both sides. Uh, whether you've never followed Jesus, whether you just absolutely can't let go of something and you'd love someone to pray with you to help you let go and to truly entrust the Lord to fight your battles, to truly entrust that he's the protection, that, that your insurances or your resources or your strength is, is not what ultimately is going to provide any sort of sense of real uh, protection, uh, even the prosperity that you seek and that you chase, that it is found in Jesus, that it is a spiritual prosperity that he brings that will not be perfectly completed and fulfilled until he returns. Um, there's something you want to give up to the Lord today. This would be a great time for that. So I'm going to pray uh, in just a minute. Our team will be up to lead us in a closing song, and then our ushers will pass the baskets. Maybe you don't feel great about walking up in front of people. Um, write a prayer request on a card, throw it in a bag when it comes by. Let's pray. Lord, we, we want to just take our lives right now, our circumstances, our relationships, uh, the things that we think are going well, the things that we know are train wrecks. Lord, uh, we want to give them to you. Uh, Lord, we, we want to confess that we have looked for other ways, uh, just like the people of Israel worshiping other gods. We have looked for other ways to find what we need, not believing that we can trust you, not believing that you will come through. Um, Lord, speak to our hearts this morning that you are sufficient, that you are enough, that you are here, that you are near. Lord, that you have been with us and that you will be with us. Uh, Lord, you promised to fight our battles. May we entrust them to you. Lord, I wonder if for many of us uh, we would see you fight our battles if we would put our weapons down. Lord, show us what it looks like to put our weapons down, not as a posture of defenselessness, but as a posture of faith. Lord, show us what it means to follow you this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.